Last week, we started a very short series that I am calling An Oasis of Art and Soul. And what we are doing is we're looking at an anthology of poems that goes back thousands of years that uses human language as an artistic expression of what our soul desires. Now, some of you have favorite writers, and when they publish a new book or possibly a new article, you're quick to go online and you're quick to order that book because there's something about their writing. There's a something about the way they express themselves that touches you deeply. And I am saying here that the Psalms are written with that in mind. It is using the human language in such a way that sometimes through metaphor, sometimes through hyperbole, and sometimes through symbolism, there is a message for those that hear it and read it that is to help us understand something about how God connects to us. And so this is an oasis. And what we have found over many, many decades and centuries is that when people go through trying times, often they turn to the Psalms. Sometimes when they want to sing out in praise to God for a good gift that has been given to them, they will turn to the Psalms. Sometimes when they are in lament of some sort because they have lost something of great significance, they will go to the Psalms. Sometimes the Psalms is a mixture of all kinds of angles because there's all different types of Psalms. Now, that's not what this particular series is all about, but what this series is about is to let the writings of the Psalms resonate inside of you deeply so that it touches your soul. So in this collection of Psalms, we said last week that there is something said about God's time, that our time sits within God's timelessness. The psalmist tells us to teach us, Lord, to number our days. Help us to understand where we fit. So we used this little graphic last week talking about eternity, and we talked a little bit how we are those dots and dashes in our own temporal nature of how we reside within God's time. We have also said that God's timelessness, his eternal nature, have been revealed at various points in time, and we experience that in moments of time. One last one here. God's timelessness extends into tomorrow. We know that God will continue to exist into the future, but our time is experienced only in the past and in the present, but tomorrow is foggy. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And yet because God is eternal, because God is timeless, we can put our times into his hand. So today I want to talk about God's place. Now what I mean by that is if you were to ask a child, where is God? They might go up there, or they might go in here. But if you pulled out a map of the world, or let's say just the United States, or even the state of Ohio, and you were to say, where does God dwell? They wouldn't know what to do. 
because rarely do we understand that God's place has a residence at a specific place in the course of time. So you can't divide this idea between God's time and God's place because at times God has shown himself in various spots around the world and in the Psalms in particular. There's a specific city that is at the core of the Psalms and that is the city of Jerusalem. Which makes sense. This is a Jewish writing and Jerusalem is the capital city. It is also called Mount Zion. Now this picture up here is a picture of Jerusalem. I have never been to Jerusalem, maybe some of you have. But it's not an overwhelming city like Chicago or L.A. or Boston or New York. It's situated on some hills. And in this elevation atop this hill is this city of Jerusalem. And the Psalms talk about this mystery of space and time that comes together. So repeatedly, the Psalms celebrate, almost embarrassingly, in vivid language, the belief that the Creator God of the universe has, for some reason, known only to Him, taken up residence on a small hill in the Judean uplands. And that would cause most people around the world to scratch their head. You mean the living God, the one that created everything over the course of billions and billions of years, actually chooses this distinctive home where the fertile crescent and the eastern wilderness meets. It's almost kind of like in between. And what we find is God almost couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to be in Eden or whether he wanted to be in the wilderness. Those two places are significant in the history of the nation of Israel. And what we find is Jerusalem becomes the place where David, the main contributor of the Psalms, writes most of his material. What we find is David decided to make Jerusalem the capital city. It was an unconquered city. It was a city where no one tribe would be able to claim that God had picked them out of all the other tribes and that he favored them. Was God really going to be found in one place? And how can you avoid the danger of idolatry if this one place is the chosen city where God is going to dwell? You see, the danger of idolatry could and would be avoided if there was a much bigger area or a much bigger picture or a bigger perspective. Well, the Psalms seem to center on this idea of where can I go to meet God? But you'll find that even though it emphasizes the city of Jerusalem, that's not where it starts. You see, God dwells in the cosmos. And God's place extends into the heaven. And if you forget everything else that I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes, remember this. This is kind of a summary slide of what the Old Testament into the New Testament teaches. God's place extends into the heavens, but he chooses to tabernacle on earth through a structure called the tabernacle and the temple until the person of Jesus, and then it's experienced in the person of Jesus who tabernacles among us for 33 years, and then 
after he leaves and ascends to the Father, he gives the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence within his people. And so where is God to be found? It's to be found within us, but also among us. For wherever two or three are gathered in his name, I am there with them, the Scripture says. So let's break this down a little bit. So the Scriptures tell us that God dwells in the cosmos. Listen to Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun where like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. So the psalmist here is a psalm written by David. He says, God has pitched a tent in the cosmos. It's almost as if he's gone camping, and it is there that he chooses to run an orderly universe. Now think about the universe for a moment. I don't know if you're into astronomy or not, but think about what we have learned over the course of the last uh, several hundred years. You know, there are galaxies that are beyond our imagination. With the use of the Hubble telescope, we can reach almost to the edge of the universe, but God is even beyond that, above that, and outside of that. And what we're told is there are trillions of stars. There's billions of galaxies. It's mind-bending to think that before the creation of the cosmos, over the course of billions and billions and billions of years, God existed outside of time and space But then he chooses, over the course of billions of years, to bring this vast universe into being, and it displays his glory. It displays the beauty of his person. So that's where the Psalms begin. It begins with this idea, God dwells in the cosmos. And there's a reflection of that in Psalm 139. You might be familiar with this one. Here is another psalm of David, and he says in Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me. Do you see the use of language there? That's why I'm talking about it's an oasis of art. This is a piece of art that we are reading. And so if I go up, God's there. If I go down, God is there. If I go west, God is there. If I go east, God is there. Because God fills the universe. He fills the universe. Technical word for that is called omnipresent. That he's available and he exists in the entire universe. But at a point in time, God chose to enter into the world that he had created. And listed on our slide here are some examples of this. 
Now, we're not going to turn to everything, but in your liturgy is an outline of this material, and you can look at these references if you so choose. So God delivers the nation of Israel from captivity, from Egypt, and as they go out into the wilderness, he gives instructions in the book of Exodus for the building of this portable house, and it's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is this portable way where God will show himself to his people. And so over the course of 40 years, when they are traveling through the wilderness, they use this portable structure to see that God is dwelling among them. Now, that's where this theme begins by the psalmist. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Psalm 84, verse 1. It says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So this begins in the tabernacle. And you can see in the upper left-hand corner, that's kind of a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. It was basically canvas and other material that could be taken down. And as God moved through the wilderness, leading the people toward a promised land, this nomadic people would be able to set this structure up, camp there for a while, be able to worship, be able to offer sacrifices, and feel the presence of God. Finally, though, there comes a point where they enter the promised land, and the Old Testament tells us that they want a king. Saul becomes their first king, but David succeeds him. And David makes the decision to make Jerusalem the home center of this new empire, this new kingdom that uh, has developed. Now, the eternal creator is said to come to a point on earth. Now, within classic philosophy, either the gods are far away in their own heaven and they don't get involved in the world, or sometimes they will make a choice to come down. So, in the New Testament, in a city called Ephesus, there's this temple of Artemis, and it was believed that Artemis dwelt there. But I read for you earlier Psalm 48, where it talks about great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And so what we find is, at least initially in David's reign, he begins to talk about Jerusalem as the place where God is going to dwell among his people. But David had a vision, and the vision was this portable tent-like structure is not worthy of the great God that delivered us out of Egypt. Therefore, I want to build a temple, just like there were temples in all the other uh, surrounding uh, you know, uh, civilizations. They would build temples to their gods and so forth. So what David does is he has plans to build in Jerusalem a, a physical temple. And what we find is God then begins to take up residence in the temple. Now, David is not the one, though, that builds the temple. God tells him, no, your son Solomon is the one that is going to build the temple. And he does. He builds a magnificent structure. You see just a portion of it in the second picture up there. And this physical structure is dedicated. We read earlier out of Second Chronicles chapter 6 where he prays a prayer of dedication. But he makes a point, 
how conceited would I be to think that this almighty God would make his singular dwelling within a temple that I built with my hands. So what we find is that there is this idea, yes, God is showing himself here in this temple, but he's not confined by it. He's bigger than that temple, even though that's a way that the people would have comfort is a way, uh, way that the people could worship to come to the temple, and they do. Usually three times a year in the Jewish religion, they would travel to Jerusalem if they could afford it, and it would be there that they would offer sacrifice and other things. So that is the Old Testament picture of where God dwells. And then what we find is that the Psalms emphasize this. So next time you kind of do one of these numbers, you just kind of turn open your Bible and you come to the Psalms, you put your finger down, I bet you'll find these themes, God in the cosmos, God in Jerusalem, God in the temple. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Now we fast forward a little bit. And I think this is needed to complete the picture. Even though this is a series about the Psalms, you need to fast forward to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, there's this bold claim that God chose to make his presence known in the person of Christ. In the person of Jesus, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the Gospel of John, this marvelous uh, passage, what we find is at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John intentionally makes Uh, his first chapter sound like the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. But when you read down through chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there's a couple of things to note in verse 14. The Word became flesh. His dwelling, there's that theme that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He made His dwelling among us. You know, actually, in the Greek language, it could be translated, He tabernacled among us. Isn't that a fascinating use of words there? That as God made His presence known in the tabernacle and in the temple, He made His presence known in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, In chapter 2 of John, Jesus goes into this massive rebuild. The temple of Solomon is destroyed by the invasion of Babylon. And so the book of Haggai, that Old Testament prophet, encourages the people to rebuild. But they don't have the resources to build the magnificent structure of Solomon. So it's this small little uh, structure that doesn't even compare to Solomon's structure. But when you come into the New Testament, there is a ruler by the name of Herod the Great that decides that he is going to build a temple that will replace this small rinky-dink shack that was built after the exile. And he pours money into it. He pours workers into it. And you know what? The structure took 46 years to build. 46 years. Wow. You even see part of this if you look up online 
the wailing wall in Jerusalem. You see how big that is as people put their prayers into the uh, cracks and holes of the wall. That is just one wall of this massive structure. And so what we find is this here becomes this massive jaw-dropping structure. And Jesus, in chapter 2 of John, goes into this structure and he sees all these business people that no longer value the fact that this is a house of prayer or this is a place of dwelling that you can meet God, but they use it as a place of business and they charge people outrageous amounts of money to offer up um, doves and, and goats and lambs and so forth. And Jesus goes in and he flips over the tables and he says, how dare you make this house of prayer a place of business. And what we find is that the Jews react and say, how dare you do this? Who gives you the authority to come in here and flip tables on us? And then Jesus makes this statement here. In John chapter 2, he says in verse 20, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. See, Jesus made a statement, go ahead, tear this temple down and I'll raise it up again in three days. Nobody, no one can do this. But the temple that he spoke of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. You see, now... The tabernacle of God dwells among men in the person of Jesus. He is an earthly presence for us to understand what God is really like. If you want to understand what God is really like, you look to the person of Jesus, not to religious institutions, not to the corruption of politics and religion. You look to Jesus and you go, God is a beautiful, loving being. And he's put his grace upon us. And so... One more reference in John. and John chapter 4, Jesus travels through an area called Samaria and he stops at a well and he talks to a woman who's half Jewish and half Gentile and she's called the Samaritan woman and it's a lengthy passage of scripture. But in the course of their dialogue, there is this idea of where God dwells and where we are to worship. And so this woman says to Jesus, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. See, it's still a physical place in their mind where God dwells. Then Jesus says this, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. All of a sudden, now the location has changed. It's no longer Jerusalem or any other capital city. The location is in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the one who tabernacled among us. He is the one that dwells among us. He is the one that allows us to see God as he really is. Now, as we move forward, then what we find as, is that as God dwells among his people, it comes to a focus in the person of Jesus Christ. What we find is he cleanses the temple 
And then he talks to a woman, and what he tells us is there's this new dwelling place. And so then, here is the lasting promise of the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, in chapter 2, he makes reference to God's dwelling place. And what we find is here he is in this massive cosmopolitan city of Ephesus where there's this huge physical structure dedicated to Artemis. But he says this in chapter 2. Listen to verses 19 through 22 when he says this. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now listen, listen, perk up. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built up together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Do you know where God lives now? In people. God lives in people. He lives in you. He lives in you. He lives in me. And together, we become the temple or the household of God where God's presence can be felt and seen we have a lot to live up to don't we sometimes we fall way short of that but what we note is that from now until Christ sets up his eternal kingdom whenever that is that might be another couple thousand years who knows but there's this promise I read to you Revelation 21 I won't read it again but it is the promise God will dwell among his people. So here's how I want to wrap this up. We see this introduced to us in the Psalms, but built upon the Psalms is this idea that one comes in to show us what God is really like. His name is Jesus. And when we place Christ as a priority in our life, and when we do it together, when we travel together and sojourn together through this world, loving on each other as God loves us, God takes up residence among us. And hopefully we feel his presence in each other. So you might be asking, well, this sounds like a seminary lecture. So what? What does this have to do? Well, here's what it has to do with us today. If God was willing to take up residence among his people in a variety of different ways, then if he's willing to take up residence even this day among his people, where do you need God to be today in your life? What's your situation? What's your mindset? What's your circumstances? Where do you need God to be in your life today? And I want to tell you, Wherever you need God to be in your life today, He's already there. He's already there. And it's there in the midst of this week that we'll find God in His timelessness step into time to bring us comfort or wisdom or grace. It's in this setting here in Willoughby, Ohio, in my home, in your home, in your apartment, whatever it may be, God will take up residence through the Holy Spirit to whisper in our ear, I love you. Nothing can separate you from my love. 
No matter how hard it gets, as you walk through this world, there is a place where you can see God. It's in you by His Spirit, and it's among your, His people as we gather together. So I love what the Catholic theologian Harry, uh, Henry Nouwen said as I close. He says, once you're in communion with God, you have the eyes to see and ears to hear other people in whom God has also found a dwelling place. We are all so very different, aren't we? We all grew up in different families. We've all experienced different things. We all have our own challenges. We all have our own shortcomings. But God takes up residence within people. We're not only made in the image of God, but God takes up his residence within people. And it's something that I can encourage you to do. Be the presence of the Lord in somebody's world this week. There's somebody you're working with. There's somebody in your family. There's somebody in your friendship circle that needs to know that God has not abandoned them. And you and I can be the vocal point that they need to hear that God is still with us. And so, my brothers and sisters, what we find is that as confusing as this world is, There's one thing we do not need to be confused about. God loves his creation. He loves his people. He loves all mankind. He loves all created things that he's placed on planet earth for us to enjoy. He loves us. And if you think you can't comprehend the cosmos, which none of us can, his love is even more immense than that. Would you stand with me as we close? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is beyond our comprehension that as the Creator God, you chose to take up residence in the small hills of a Judean hillside. And then through the progress of history, you hung on a cross, on a hill called Mount Calvary. And you did so that you can show us that you are for us and not against us, and that you love us, and that you'll meet us wherever we are. Whisper into our ears today, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid that you have not left us that our space is also your space and that you take up your presence in our person and we need your strength. We need your love. We need your guidance, whatever we face this week and beyond. Thank you for this piece of art that is found in the Psalms. Help us to take up residence within it as we read it And may its words take up residence within our soul. For I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. I hope you have a great week. And I hope you enjoy uh, this coming week until we meet again. God bless you.